Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would ask you to open it to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5, which you'll find on page 810 in the black Bibles that you'll see into the chairs. If you want to follow along, follow along in one of those Bibles. Um, we're continuing our series that we've entitled, Why Jesus? And what our prayer is through this series is that you would be encouraged and you would be excited to talk to your friends that don't believe in Jesus, that have problems with the Christian faith, that you'd be more free and more willing to engage those issues. As we've talked about the common objections to the Christian faith, uh, my prayer and my hope is that you realize that you don't have to have all the answers, Um, that really the goal is to point people to Jesus and the hope that we have in Him. The Holy Spirit works as the Word is presented to people, and we don't have to know everything. Honestly, we don't know everything, right? We don't have all the answers. We just know the answer, Jesus. And so I want to encourage you and continue to pray for you that God would empower you to speak to others. Um, And for those of you that are still asking questions that are here, wanting to know more, we're excited that you're here. We're excited that you're here considering the things that we're sharing with you and would love to talk to you more about it. If, If we have opportunity, we'd love to talk to you more about your concerns and questions that you may have. This morning, we're going to talk about the problem of hell. Um, So the last two weeks, I've just been immersed in hell, right? I didn't preach last week, and so I had an extra week to study, and I've been uh, listening to uh, scary stuff like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and uh, reading uh, or listening to the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I've also been reading a lot and will quote a lot today this book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's a fantasy that describes an encounter between phantoms from hell and uh, the, the solid people from heaven. And so, of course, it's a fantasy, so it doesn't describe in detail biblically what it's all going to be like, right? But Lewis does a great job of unpacking the psychology uh, of what we're going through as we reject the mercy of God. That there's, there's interesting things going on there in our own mind, and Lewis does a great job of unpacking what that looks like, so I'd recommend the book to you. It's a hard topic. Um, hell... Uh, is bad, right? It's the worst thing there is, so it's like one of the worst things we could talk about. And as modern Americans, it's something, frankly, that most people don't believe in. Even most Christians, those that believe the Bible even more and more, don't believe in hell. And so we're going to try to um, work through that today, try to present the biblical data, what God has to say about hell. I think because we like freedom, we like choice, uh, the idea of a permanent uh, judgment, a eternal judgment, Uh, is repulsive to us as Americans. That's a hard thing for us to swallow. But ironically, uh, both Tim Keller talks about this, but also specifically C.S. Lewis in in the book here, talks about the idea that hell is really, in in a sense, a monument to our choice. Hell is, in the end, God saying, okay, you can have what you want. You can have uh, eternality without God. And that that really is, at its essence, what hell is, is the removal of God's blessing forever. Um, C.S. Lewis says in the book, The Great Divorce, he says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, right? Those who I say to God, thy will be done. But then there's also, he says, those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So if you're living your life apart from God in the end, judgment is God saying, all right, your will be done. You, 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 can, you can have this eternity without me. Lewis says all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. 
I'm going to read from Matthew 5. Today, as I said, it's on page 810. Uh, and what we're doing is we're picking up here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He makes it real clear in the Beatitudes at the beginning that we can't come to the kingdom apart from recognizing our own emptiness, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We recognize we're spiritually bankrupt. He says we'll only uh, receive and enjoy the kingdom and that righteousness as we recognize how we hunger and thirst for it. So Jesus starts off the sermon that way. We, we need to be at a place of brokenness, knowing we can't get ourselves in the door. And then he starts to go through the law and help us to understand that the law is really a heart issue. It's a heart posture before God, a heart posture where we say, I'm going to be God, you don't get to be God. And so let's pick it up in verse 20, Matthew 5, verse 20, and we'll get some of uh, Jesus' first words about hell in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5, 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That drives us back to our brokenness of the Beatitudes. All right, well, how, how do we do this? We have to hunger and thirst and beg God for his help. Verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So... We all stand guilty, right? He said, it's not enough to say, I've never killed anybody. God, God says, if you've hated someone in your heart, you've committed murder. Verse 27, he says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. These are hard words. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us uh, to understand who he is and what he's telling us today. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way you've revealed yourself as a loving God. We also thank you in faith that you are a just God. Lord, you know that's the part of this revelation that is difficult for us, and so we pray that you would allow us to be open-minded I pray this morning that you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive uh, what you say about yourself, and we ask that your spirit would move in Jesus' name, amen. Well, spending so much time soaking in hell for two weeks, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's been, been hard just studying it and looking at it. One of the things I, I heard as I was listening to some lectures on hell was that Francis Schaeffer, who is a famous uh, defender of Christianity, someone who had this incredible ministry to, to skeptics in the Swiss Alps, one of the books that we're, we're giving in the hallway, uh, The God Who Is Theirs by Francis Schaeffer. Um, when someone asked him about hell, that he, he literally just wept. Um, I, I wish I'm, I wasn't as hard-hearted as I am, obviously. I'm not weeping now, but hell should bring us to that kind of brokenness. I mean, the reality of hell is awful. It, it should break our heart. Um, and, and Jesus makes it very clear that hell is a terrible place. Hell is real. Hell is terrible. I, I wanted to read a little uh, intro from 
this book, The Great Divorce. The, the title comes from the idea of the ultimate tearing away. A divorce is a tearing, right? It's a tearing away of two people. And the great divorce is that ultimate tearing away of ourselves from God. And, and in the book, uh, as I said, you, you can't take piece by piece what Lewis is writing as this is the way it's going to be, right? But in, in the story, he has the idea that these phantoms from hell get to interact with the solid people from heaven. Uh, and again, you get insights into the psychology along the way. It's a, it's a great book and a, actually a terrifying book if you read it. Um, but I wanted to give you a vision from this book of just the glory of heaven. Uh, Lewis has a really interesting way of writing about just how good and true heaven will be. He says, I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent. He's talking about the phantoms. Fully transparent when they stood between me and it, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were, in fact, ghosts. Man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them at will, as you do with the dirt on a window pane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dewdrops were not disturbed. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place, and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they always had been, as all the men I had known had been, perhaps. It was the light, it was the grass, it was the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and I tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged until the sweat stood out on my forehead and I had lost most of the skin off of my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even like iron, but like a diamond. There was a leaf, a young tender beech leaf lying on the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort, and I believe I did just raise it, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood recovering my breath with great gasps and looking down at the daisy, I noticed that I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. Who will give me words to express the terror of that discovery? In the vision that Lewis is trying to paint, he's trying to paint the reality that hell is, is something transparent and horrible, whereas heaven is something real and solid. Eternity will be spent with God in his presence or away from God. Eternity is something that we will all live because we are made in the image of God. And so the scriptures paint the idea that we have a choice to make. We can ask God to be a part of his world, to be a part of his eternity, or we can say, I'd rather have my own eternity. I'd rather do my own thing for eternity. But the first thing that I want us to look at is, as we look at the idea of hell is that hell is. When Chris saw my PowerPoint earlier, he thought it was incomplete because it just said hell is. He's like, oh, you're missing some of your points here. Well, no, this is, this is my first point. Hell is. Hell is. It exists. And that's really hard for us. And again, I would, I would tell you, I know some of you here are believers. You believe everything the Bible says. And you don't even think twice about it, right? Uh, some of you are skeptics. You're not sure about all this. Um, wh- whether you believe the Bible or not, hell is a hard thing to believe because it's horrible. Hell is a horrible, horrible thing. And so I want, I want to let you know that it's horrible to me 
too. But that doesn't, train, that doesn't change the reality. The scriptures say that hell is, hell exists. I'm going to read again from Matthew 5 here. He says in Matthew 5, 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He's saying pain here and now is worth it because hell is not worth it. Pain here and now is a small price to pay compared to eternal pain. He says in verse 30, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now we're going to talk a little bit more in the next point about what he's talking about there of cutting off parts of ourselves. But I want to start with this idea. He's saying hell is. He's warning people. He's saying this is real. This is a very real thing. Hell is, is something to be something to shudder at, something that should be repulsive. That, that's appropriate. It should repulse us. Hell is terrible. Tim Keller described a, an opportunity he had to talk to someone about some party in Manhattan, uh, or he was discussing something with them at a party, and, and this person knew he was a, a Bible teacher, a Bible believer, and said, do you really believe in, in a literal fire of hell? Really? You believe in that kind of stuff? Like, could you really believe that? You know, she thought, you're an educated person. Really, would you believe in that? And Tim Keller had an interesting answer for her. He said, well, I do think fire in the New Testament is a metaphor for hell. I do think it's a metaphor. And so she was kind of relieved, thinking, oh, okay, he's enlightened. You know, he sees it as metaphorical, not really real. And he said, I think the reality of hell is infinitely worse. So I think it's a metaphor. I mean, fire is a metaphor in the New Testament, but it's, it's infinitely worse. Jesus uses the word Gehenna, which was where they would uh, dump their trash. So there was you know, refuse and dung and trash and decaying animal bodies, and it just stunk, right? Have you ever driven by a sewage plant? Anybody that's ever driven on Highway 93 in Temple, you know that stink, right? It's just, that, that was what this place was, Gehenna. It was a place where false worship had taken place and child sacrifice had taken place and it had become a condemned place, a place of sewage and refuse. And there were fires burning all the time there. That's, that's the number one word Jesus uses for hell. There's other words. There's just Hades, which is the general word for the afterlife, and there's Tartarus, which is the idea of this bottomless pit. But usually he uses the word Gehenna. So usually when you see hell in the New Testament with Jesus speaking, he's talking about Gehenna. It says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of fire. It is a terrible, terrible place. Flip over to page 819. Page 819, we're going to look at Matthew 1340. Sorry, I know most of you don't have the Black Bible. So Matthew 1340, which if you have a Black Bible under the chairs, is 819. So Matthew 1340 says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all law breakers. So this is, a, this is a reality of His justice. He will finally judge all wickedness. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patiently waiting for us to repent. God is giving us the opportunity. He hasn't judged the world yet. He's giving us the opportunity to repent and to trust in the forgiveness that Jesus offers. God is patient, but there is a day coming where he will judge. There will be a final judgment, and all wickedness will be done away with. It says in verse 42, he'll throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, 
there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So we've got again another fire analogy at Gehenna, which is the dump with some smoke and fire. And now he says a fiery furnace. And he says also there will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, What's real popular today among some uh, Bible believers is a drift towards this doctrine called annihilationism, which is attractive to me just from a personal level, right? It just, it sounds nicer. Uh, You are annihilated, right? If If you go to hell, it means you just burned up. And it sounds nice, but that's not really what the scripture teaches is the problem. The scriptures teach that it's eternal. Scriptures teach that because we're made in the image of God, we will be eternal. We'll either be eternally in some kind of fire, right? Something horrible will be eternally in something awesome and and wonderful. Those are the two options. And as you kind of look at all the different scriptures and compare them, it starts to become more real, right? Um, One thing just from the world of science, I'm not a scientist, so I'm I'm kind of squeamish to make these kind of scientific statements, but if you take a log and you put it into the fire, it doesn't cease to exist. It's just rearranged, right? There is a destruction that takes place. It, it loses its logness, but it becomes ash and gas. And so I would say that the way to understand that uh, as a human being, as a soul, is that somehow our consciousness, our soul exists, even though we lose our humanity at some level. Um, and it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another argument for the, for the fact that we don't just burn up, but that we continue on, um, is the way that the word eternal is used. The word eternal in Greek can mean a long time. But we see when you look at all the parallel passages and all the way it's used, it's always used in comparison with the eternality, the foreverness of eternal life. And so you see hell always compared to that, so it doesn't make sense that the word would be used differently in this context. It means eternal. It means forever. Jesus talks about it again and again. He actually talks about it more than heaven in the New Testament. If you just do a word search of hell and weeping and judgment, you'll find uh, a lot of these horrible passages. If you flip back a few pages to Matthew 10, Jesus warns us. Again, because Jesus believes that hell is real, Jesus warns us in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is warning us because he loves us saying, you're more valuable than sparrows. God loves you. Jesus says elsewhere, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus invites us into his presence. Again, to use C.S. Lewis's word, there's no one in hell that doesn't choose hell. We choose it. We say, I don't want you, God. I've joked with you all before that the two truths of atheism are that there is no God and I hate him. And hell is a monument to that. Hell is a monument to, I hate you, God. People saying that eternally. So Jesus warns us. Jesus invites us. He says, come to me. Come to me. And he warns us of the horrors of hell. There's an objectivity to it. Um, it's, it's horrible. Again, it's something you know, personally and emotionally we don't like to believe in, but there's an objectivity to things when they just exist and we just have to face them. I uh, like disease. Lewis uses the argument in his book about the idea of, of jaundice. 
Um, jaundice is a disease a lot of babies have. You know, they have to be put in the sun or be put under a light to help with that. And I thought this was really interesting. He talks about the objectivity of hell and judgment. We can't make it go away by not liking it, right? I have a picture here. I kind of wish I hadn't gotten this because it's gross. There's someone with uh, yellow eyes there. Um, so she's got jaundice. And Lewis says here, He says, every disease that submits to a cure shall be cured. So the repentant heart, the the heart that says, God help me, will be cured. So every disease that submits to a cure shall be cured. But we will not call blue yellow to please those who insist on still having jaundice. We're not going to change colors here for those that insist on keeping their jaundice. He says, for anyone that wants to be healed... Do you remember the story of the, the man by the pool at Bethsaida? Jesus said, do you want to be healed? I mean, that's really the question. Not whether or not hell exists, but do you want to be healed? Do you want to live with God forever? Do you want to enjoy him? That, that's really the question. It said in, in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those that can kill the body, but fear the one that can kill the body and soul in hell. And so I, I would take from that that an application is that there are things in our life that we fear more than God. There are things that have become gods in our life that have become the thing that's like right in our face. It's overpowering us. It's making it hard for us to fear the right things. And Jesus reminds us, he says, don't fear just the things, the people, the circumstances that can kill your body, but fear the one that can kill your soul and your body in hell. At the root of sin is us worshiping some other God, us fearing something else more than the true God. So that's my question for you this morning is, what are those things that you are fearing? What are those things that seem more ultimate to you than hell, than eternity, than the God of the universe who will, who will judge evil? What are those things? What is that sin you're clinging to that you say, God, I can't, I can't live without this. I've got to have this. Maybe what you're looking at on the internet, maybe some relationship you're involved in that you know you shouldn't be involved in. Maybe something that's going on at work. I don't, I don't know what it is, but because of Jesus' words there, he's warning us, don't, don't fear the things that are right here. Fear the ultimate. Fear, fear the God who will judge the, the quick and the dead. Fear the God who can throw our bodies and our souls into hell. The next thing I want us to see is that hell results from sin. Hell results from sin, going back to Matthew 5 again. I want to talk a little more about when he's talking about here cutting off your hand or chopping off your hand, cutting out your eye. Back in 529, hell results from sin. 529 says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is kind of like the thing earlier about the metaphor of hell, right? This is a metaphor, but something much more painful needs to happen, really, than chopping off your hand. Something more painful needs to be rooted out of our life. If we're clinging to sin as a false savior, there's something worse that needs to be gouged out than our eye. There's something more painful that needs to be cut off than a hand. He's not talking about just physically cut your hand off and then you'll never sin again. He's saying deal with the sin in your life. 
deal with it because it's killing you. So hell is the result of sin. It's the fruit of sin. It's ultimately saying, I worship this. This is my God. I don't want you, God. I want this. I want this pleasure. I want this comfort. I want this security. And Jesus is, again, warning us because he loves us. He's saying, deal with it. Deal with it. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful. But the pain of rooting that out of our life is less in comparison to the pain of eternal torment, of eternal hell. I think it's worth it. I have a picture here of a life preserver. If you were drowning in the water, you would want a life preserver. You would say, throw it to me. Help me, right? If you're struggling to keep your head above water. But often what we do is we choose other saviors that can't save us. So instead of clinging to a life preserver, uh, we cling to something that's just going to sink us to the bottom. I have a picture here of a concrete block. When we were uh, when we were building the stoves in Guatemala, we would build them out of blocks. Those things get kind of heavy after you're working with them all day, right? Don't any, any of you do any mason work, but you know you lift those over and over again. They're they're pretty substantial. And if you're struggling to keep your head afloat, it does not make sense at all that you'd say, "Throw me a concrete block," right? And that would just be stupid. And if you're a great swimmer, you could last for a little while, but if if you're dying already, that's not going to help you out. And and what we do is when we're in trouble in life, instead of calling on God to help us, instead of calling on the God of the Bible who died for us, who gives himself to us through Jesus, who took our sins upon himself on the cross, we often call out to these other saviors. We say, give me another hit of this. Give me another relationship. Give me another uh, job. Give me another whatever it is. And we think that's going to save us. And it's just like calling out for a concrete block when we're struggling to keep our head above water. Jesus says, whatever that sin is, whatever that is, be willing to root that out of your life. And again, I think the process is, you see it in the whole, you see it in the whole section, right? Go back and read the whole thing, the, the Beatitudes. He says, you've got to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You, want, you, know, you have to want God to heal you. You have to ask him to help you. You have to call on him to come alongside you. And it's going to be painful. It's not going to be easy. But ask him to help you, and he will help you. We have ministries that specifically focus on addiction recovery, like Celebrate Recovery, that help people in those situations. But really, every ministry of this church is wired for that. Like That's why we're in worship this morning, is to let go of our false gods and to worship the true God of the Bible. That's why we're here. So when you think about it, everything we do as a church is a type of addiction recovery. And I want to invite you into that honestly. Invite you into the process with the rest of us that are saying, my name's Dave and I have a problem. I worship other gods. And only Jesus is the one that can save me. And daily I am seeking to place my faith in him and ask him to recover me, to transform me. Hell is the fruit of sin. Sin will not save us. And uh, I encourage you, if you're struggling, you're dabbling, you're playing with particular sins in your life that you think aren't going to hurt you, I just, I just want to challenge you to look through the scriptures at the, at the picture of sin, the pictures of hell, and connect those dots that sin is destructive. The thing that you're doing now that feels like a controllable sin is rooting its way into your heart and taking you over. So that like that log, you're, you've already begun to catch fire. And you're losing your logness. And hell is the reality of that going on forever. You can repent. You can call on Jesus to help you.
The last thing I want us to see is that hell is about us. It's about self. Hell is about self. Flip over to Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, it's page 876 in the Black Bibles you'll find under the chairs. Luke chapter 16, this will be our final story that we'll look at today. It's um, the story about the rich man and the poor man uh, and the afterlife and how they talk to each other in the afterlife. And again, this is a parable, so in some ways, like C.S. Lewis's fantasy, there's main points to be learned here. Not every single point, I think, in the parable is, is uh, to be literally mined for this is what the afterlife is going to be like. I think in parables, we have to look at the main ideas, right? And so we see a separation of the wicked and the righteous. And uh, we see, again, the psychology of, of the stance that we have uh, when we're in hell, when we're separated from God. We see someone here in this rich man who, it's all about him. He's, he's still not really repentant. So Luke chapter 16, we'll start in verse 19. And I want to read one more quote. This will be the last quote from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. The teacher of the main character says, Milton was right, said my teacher, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That's the attitude of most in hell. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. There's always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. So that's the, real, that's the terrifying thing in this book. If you read this book, it's not terrifying in the sense of a horror movie. It's terrifying in the sense that you can relate to the psychology of the people in hell. That when I read that, I can relate to that. That clinging to my sin, saying, no, no, I don't want to let go of that. You can see that in the story. And we see that here with the rich man and Lazarus. So Luke 16, starting in 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So first century standards, this dude was loaded. He had everything you could ever want. Verse 20, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, often in the traditional uh, text it's called Abraham's bosom, right? It's the idea of like being there under his arm, being held, being taken care of. It's this Middle Eastern picture of peace and uh, being together and everything being okay, right? So this is how heaven is pictured. Abraham's side. You're with Abraham. You're in paradise. It says the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It's interesting, he still sees the rolls, right? Lazarus is still a servant. Have, have Lazarus come down and dip his finger in some water and, and cool me. He's giving commands. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. So he's saying, Child, you, you got your heaven. You already enjoyed your heaven on earth. Verse 26, he says, Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses is saying, they've been warned. They have the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. And then he says in verse 30, 
And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be con- become convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Romans 1 says we are without excuse, that we've seen God clearly. But he's revealed himself to us. We have the word of God. He's told us already, just as Abraham saying, they have Moses and the prophets. It's Hell is not about God not giving you enough chances. Hell is not unfair. Hell is us enjoying what we've asked for. Hell is saying, I choose to be away from you, God. And even in this place of torment, we see this man really unrepentant, still arguing. He wasn't given an opportunity. He wasn't given a chance. And Abraham saying, people will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. Of course, we know that to be true because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul says 500 witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, you can go talk to them if you want to. You can meet these people. You can ask the apostles. You can ask the other witnesses. Jesus rose from the dead. And so in the end, again, hell is not something chosen for us. Hell is something that we choose. It's separation from God. We didn't get a lot of time to talk about the concept biblically of judgment, but Miroslav Volf is a helpful uh, author. He's a theologian that I believe is at Yale. And what he's talked about, he, he grew up in some of the atrocities that were happening in, in Croatia. And he understands biblically that if you've been through terrible things, to say that no one should ever seek vengeance and we live a meaningless life and there's no such thing as justice in the world, that doesn't really help someone. But if you've been through terrible things, if you've been abused, if you've been abused or mistreated or hurt in some way, if injustice has been uh, committed against you, to understand that God is just, that there is a day of reckoning coming, that, that helps you to be at peace. Knowing that God is just helps us to say, vengeance belongs to the Lord. I'll, I'll let him handle it. That actually helps us to live as peaceful people. Throughout the scriptures, God uses this analogy of the cup of God's wrath, that he's going to make his enemies drink the cup of his wrath. And so that's used as a description both of the temporary judgments that took place when a nation would come and conquer the people of Israel or some other nation, but it's also used for the eternal judgment of hell. The cup of God's wrath will be poured out. And we see that same phrasing used in the garden when Jesus is praying to the Father and saying, Father, if there's any way, may this cup pass from me. Of course, I don't want to drink this cup, but not my will be done, but your will be done. And we know that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. So if you don't take anything else away from hell today, I want you to hear that Jesus took hell for you. That if you trust in him, you, you don't have to live eternally separated from God. But you can be forgiven, you can be transformed, you can be remade, you can live solidly, you can know God face to face through Jesus, through him pouring out the wrath of God against your sins on the cross. Jesus receiving the full penalty of our rebellion and giving us his perfect righteousness. So I hope you'll trust in him this morning. We're going to, I'm going to pray, we're going to sing one final song to meditate on the cross and all that Jesus gives us through absorbing God's wrath for us. And then we're going to share in communion together after that. Let me pray for us.
God, we pray that you would help us to celebrate you this morning. As we said earlier, hell is is an awful subject. It's a hard subject for us to wrap our minds around, our, our hearts around. And God, I just pray that we would fear you more than any other temporary discomfort. That we would trust in you as the one who loves us. Who wants to be with us forever who wants to adopt us into your family, who wants to forgive us for our sins, who wants to make us into the kind of people that gives ourselves in love to others the way you did for us. We pray that you would sink this into our heart as we sing together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, let's stand together. Sing this song uh, to be reminded of the hope that we have that for anyone who has trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior and accepted His uh, His work on our behalf. So uh, let's sing out these words together.
perfect spotless righteousness, the queen unchangeable, oh, I am the king of glory and 